0: Previously on The Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast.
1: There are thousands of pieces of information that trigger hundreds of actions by scores of rescue team members who are all taking their orders from you. He had a difficult time growing up here in Queens and Woodside
2: different, you know?
3: It was like he was kind and honest and loyal. Probably two things that stand out as a child in the memories of my father, sports and discipline. I think he was extremely proud to be
1: part of the Marine Corps, but he never pushed it on us. He said, you're going to college. When Ray
4: Downey went into a building, I can remember this many, many times. You go into a building and it is just total chaos. Things are not going well. He would start walking out orders and just like, not loudly, but in his way, with that command presence, everybody knew him, and all of a sudden, things would just kind of get done, and the fire would go out. When I looked at Downey, he just like kind of <laughs> gave me a half smile and shook his head, and I'm like, eh, this guy's the real yeah, deal. Yeah,
3: he was an old school, old school tough guy. You didn't want to disappoint him. You certainly didn't want to let him down. I'm like, that's my father.
0: On September 11, 2001, Deputy Chief Raymond Downey was the commanding officer of FDNY Special Operations Command. Tragically, he was one of the 343 members of the FDNY who made the supreme sacrifice on 9-11 while trying to save innocent victims. Chief Raymond Downey was one of the department's most decorated fire officers and a true department icon with 39 years of dedicated service. He was also one of the nation's leading experts on rescue operations at collapsed buildings. In episode one of this series, we explored the life and legacy of Chief Downey as a family man and legendary firefighter and officer who led by example and upheld the highest standards. In this second and final episode in the series, we'll take a closer look at his role as a strategic visionary who advanced rescue training and operations in the FDNY and beyond, his deep commitment to his Catholic faith, his incredible response to the attacks on 9-11, and his enduring legacy, all compliments of his wife of 41 years, his children and former firefighters who worked with him and were inspired by his actions and leadership? I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Thank you for listening. Captain Raymond Downey's tenure as the company commander of the rescue ended in 1994 when he was promoted to the rank of battalion chief. Upon his promotion, he immediately made his way back to the same neighborhood and largely worked in Brooklyn's 5-7 Battalion, which is quartered with engine 235. His son Chuck, once again, found himself under the same roof as his father, this time in a firehouse and sharing a means of transportation in a chief's car.
3: He was UFO in a 5-7, so I got to work with him when I was over there. Quite, I actually got to drive him one day because, you know, classic no-aids uh, who goes upstairs. Well, they're like, Your hey, father's working. You're going to drive him. I said, I don't want to go upstairs. I got the nozzle. My groups are in. <laughs> and I wind up driving him. That was pretty funny because uh, the Division 8 at the time was an old 105 guy. I remember answering the phone that day. Hey, yeah, fire firefighter down, a battalion 5-7 like, oh, is your daddy working? Can I talk to your dad? <laughs> yeah, it's was one of the, I can't think of Eddie's last name, but he, he was an aide in the, in the 11th, the 105 guy that knew my father back from, from the day.
0: Despite having 32 years on the job and thousands of working fires under his belt at the time of his promotion, Battalion Chief Ray Downey embraced the opportunity to study building types in areas of the city that were less familiar to him. He encouraged other leaders in the FDNY to do the same and penned a compelling article that highlighted the importance of self-study. The article remains a proud source of fatherly motivation and humility for Chuck and other family members.
3: Yeah, I remember the first time reading that. I was like, oh, my God. You know, once again, because, you know, I guess a father and a son, you know, the relationship everyone has different relationships but it was like providing more insight like him always being busy is what relayed down to us because all five of us are always staying busy so he came home and he had that next door you know like we do right i'm gonna be working in midtown tonight i should read high rise or i'm gonna be working in jamaica i should read some pds right but yeah that newsletter i still i still have i have it on my desk at home i i reread that every now and then it's pretty powerful
0: As newly promoted lieutenants, Downey's sons, Joe and Chuck, both sought to adopt elements of their father's leadership style. Accordingly, they placed an emphasis on discipline, ensuring the welfare of the members under their charge, and maintaining a peak level of physical fitness.
3: Yeah, I think I adopted some of his styles about taking care of the guys, you know, like he was a tough disciplinarian, but he always took care of it, you know, like it's like it's almost like they're my kids, then I'm going to take care of them. And I think he he verbalized that through, you got to stay sharp, you got to stay in shape. I know we often talked about that as far as, you know, like we didn't say the leadership word, it was more as, listen, you got to stay sharp, you know, you got to stay in the books, you know, there's not many fires that, that I had, but you can still stay sharp and read, and then you got to take care of the guys. He was big with taking care of the guys. It's funny how the old guys from Rescue 2 were scared, feared, intimidated, whatever the word is, but he really took care of them, you know? So I think what I learned from him was maybe I don't have a leadership style where I, I, I'm i going to make everyone scared of me, but as far as taking care of the guys, only when someone really crosses the borders when I snap, where my father had that, that a different type of demeanor all along, you know? I think taking care of the guys and staying sharp is what he preached to me. Being tactically savvy, right? And him being in shape and knowing what this job entails, right? It was always about staying in shape physically.
0: Downey spent the first 30 years in the FDNY primarily going to fires, first in Hell's Kitchen as a firefighter, then as a lieutenant in Harlem, and then as a captain and battalion chief in Brooklyn's toughest neighborhoods. His tactical judgment and instincts at structural fires were superior and the product of leading and operating at innumerable fires. At the time, FDNY rescue companies remained primarily focused on structural fire operations with a principal objective of rescuing firefighters in distress. Although Downey was committed to sustaining the firefighting mission set in every type of building original to New York City, he also recognized there was a need to cultivate the technical capabilities of rescue companies at all emergencies. Joe Downey noted his father's innovative thinking.
1: You know, there's always a buzzword, and technical rescue was the buzzword at the time. Like, who did technical rescue? He did it, but there was no training involved, there was no classes really to follow. I think he had the foresight that, listen, our special units got to figure out something else to do, too. The fire duty's down. What else are we going to do? And have a more standardized approach to technical rescue. At the time, when I went to squad one, he had open squad one in 77. There was no training there either. You went there, you learned from the senior firefighters, whether it was technical rescue, firefighting. We didn't really go to any schools. There was none at the time. And you just learned in-house. And it was great training. You learned from experience and the tools that they had. And uh, it's a lot different now. We've got a lot more tools. They they were limited number of tools and they had to figure things out with the tools they had. Right now, you know, we supply our companies with so much tools they got like three deep on what tool they want to use for for different operations. But I don't know the foresight of him thinking. He's he, he was always uh, a visionary and and thought ahead of, you know, how to be better.
0: As a captain, Downey's approach to advancing the technical rescue capability set of FDNY rescue companies was comprehensive and programmatic. Though not an engineer or even a carpenter or a tradesman, Downey became the foremost subject matter expert on technical rescue operations at structural collapses, not only in New York City, but across the United States.
1: He always talked about the computer in the brain, you know, to store things in that computer and have it there. So I'm thinking... Did he have a collapse? And now it inspired him to do more research on how we can be better at collapses. And uh, yeah, he was the forefather of technical rescue in, in the country at, at, at one point. Uh, getting involved with the federal system in 91, that's still when he was the captain of Rescue 2, when they had some big events out in California and they needed to uh, support the local agencies with a bigger footprint from a federal agency. That's how they came up with the federal task forces. And he was one of the original members of that committee to talk about it and put it together. And I think he brought that back to our job within, within our special operations that this is some of the stuff we have to do also back in the 90s, even though he started in the 80s thinking about it. But how did he become that person? I don't know. I don't, I don't have the answer to that. I wish we did. Um, I guess maybe when people worked with him. He was able to solve problems, and I don't want to give this up, but he wasn't very handy you know, around the house. He got things done. He wasn't that um, expert carpenter, master carpenter in any way, or uh, builder. Uh, he was a doer. He figured things out all the time, but I think his biggest attribute would be researching things and understanding them and then able to convey that to his people on how to make things better to lead them because he knew we had good people. We've got really talented people in these in these companies. You don't have to be the talent guy, but you've got to be able to get that out of them and bring that out. And I think he was excellent at doing that.
0: Ray Downey was well-versed on every urban technical rescue discipline, but he was undoubtedly most passionate about structural collapse. Downey spent the 1980s researching structural collapse and developing tactics, techniques, and procedures for specialized teams and units to employ at building collapses. He was an avid lecturer and author on the topic as well. The urban blight of the 1960s and 70s generated an increasing risk of structural collapse. Downey's self-learned expertise was in demand on numerous occasions at catastrophic collapses where civilians were trapped. Additionally, the rise of international and domestic terrorism in the 1980s and 90s brought with it an emerging threat of bombings. On two occasions, terrorists targeted innocent civilians in heavily occupied high-rise office buildings, the first occasion being the bombing of New York's World Trade Center in February of 1993, and the second was the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in April of 1995. On both occasions, Captain Downey played an instrumental effort in commanding rescue efforts. In addition to serving as a technical advisor on the national stage, Captain Downey's leadership was once again on display as he served as a principal architect for a federal urban search and rescue task force that would deploy to large scale catastrophes across the U.S. and around the globe.
1: Yeah, so at 95, we began that. He, he was part of beginning a federal system in like 91. So uh, he became the national representative for all 28 teams. So he re- Well, there was only 24 or 25 at the time. But somehow they picked him to be the representative of all the task forces at the time. They were beginning like an IMT, uh, but he was the operations chief. So at Oklahoma City Bombing, he didn't go out with New York Task Force One per se, but he went out as the ops chief and ran the operation out there. New York Task Force One came out later on, you know, a day or two later, but he, he wasn't the task force leader. He was the operations chief there. And again, somehow figuring things out on what they need to do to get the remains of the people that were still in there. And I remember picking him up at the airport. He was beat up when he came back. And he was, he was upset of what he saw. He wouldn't talk about it. But you could see his personality that affected him. There was a couple of significant events that I think affected him. Oklahoma City bombing was one of them. You know, seeing the kids being you know that were killed there and having to get their matter there, I believe that really s- stuck with him for a long time. But that un- unfortunate event put the federal system on the map to task forces and and himself as the leader of the urban search and rescue program and the most one of the most knowledgeable guys that we have in the country on collapse operations. And after that, almost every event that happened in the city. Or on the federal level, whether it was hurricanes or collapses in Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, he was the guy. I don't think he missed one for some reason. He he was there. And not just to be there, but to be used as a subject matter expert, sounding board, decision maker, whatever you would. But he was the guy.
0: Following the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993 and the bombing of the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, Chief Ray Downey thought it not only imperative to enhance and standardize the capability set of the FDNY's five heavy rescue companies, but to augment the rescues and the city's lone hazardous material unit with squad companies. Chief Downey believed it critical that the FDNY keep pace with a rapidly emerging terrorist threat while adding greater depth to the FDNY's structural firefighting capability set. Joe Downey recalls that his father's vision of expanding the special operations didn't exactly align with the fire commissioner's resource plan.
1: So that's a great story that um, even Commissioner Von Essen still talks about. Um, He called my father down there around that time period and said, we got to cut back some of your units. Uh, You have too much. We're cutting here. you got to give something up. And by the time my father left the office with Von Essen, he had six squads get built. Yeah, Von Essen still tells that story, Commissioner Von Essen. He, he's told it many times to me. He's like, yeah, your father comes in. I want to whack him, you know, knock him down a little bit. And by the time he leaves, he's got six more squad companies out there yeah. that we give him. And, and that was done in 1998.
0: John Cirillo was one of the FDNY members selected by Chief Downey, Chief of Department Gansey and the Fire Commissioner to serve in one of the newly formed squad companies. Cirillo noticed Chief Downey's strategic initiative to expand the FDNY's Special Operations Command and how intimately involved he was in the process.
4: I was an engine firefighter in engine 225. They put this word out: Hey, this we're gonna expand. They're gonna be these formation of these squad companies. And I was looking to make a move, not because I, I loved where I worked in Lincoln Avenue; it was a great place to work and everything. But yeah, I think I had done ten years there. I had already taught probies for two classes, so now it was time to kind of move on. So I this uh, tryout comes up. Now, who would think of a tryout, you know? But what we've learned years later was that this was like you know one of his concepts of let me see who has the grit and the muster. And, and is going to put themselves out there in a tryout to try to get into these companies. Now, make no mistake about it. No one was coming to SOC unless he said they were coming to SOC. So he vetted everybody. There's no doubt about it. And to me, what always impressed me about him, and you got to remember too, as a young fireman back then, we did not, let's say, chummy up to Chiefs at all. You respected them. They were all Most of them were much more senior to us. You know, so we just, uh, you know, the ultimate respect for them. But every time you interacted with Chief Downey, he knew your first name. He knew who you were. You could see it in his eyes. You know, he, he knew who you were. And if he was going to talk to you, that probably meant a good thing. That, that he, you know, okay, this guy's okay. I know who John is. And uh, he comes from a good background and, and, and we're going to utilize him. So I, that, that absolutely was something that I was impressed with is a standard he set for all of us, that you really need to know your people. It can't just be that they're just numbers on, on a board. No, you have to know the person. You kind of know a little bit about them. And so, uh, you know, again, with him, I think we figured it out. You're talking somewhere around four or 500 people were in SOC back then, or, or now, I guess, is about the same. So uh, it's a tremendous amount of people to know that well. So he certainly did
0: that. In addition to expanding the FDNY's special operations capability set, Chiefs Ray Downey and John Fanning were instrumental in helping the United States Marine Corps to inform CBERF, a chemical biological incident response force that possessed the ability to respond to global and domestic terrorist threats that targeted critical federal government infrastructure in the national capital region. Downey played such a critical role in helping his beloved Marine Corps that the Marines later named their training center in Indian Head, Maryland, in his honor. By the late 1990s, Ray Downey had become one of our nation's leading experts on terrorism and the robust capability set that the emerging threat demanded at all levels of government.
1: I think we keep going back to being a visionary foresight. The things are getting worse. Terrorism was up. Uh, He did speak at the Gilmore Commission on domestic terrorism. I think his words were, it's not, if it's going to happen, It's when it's going to happen. So I believe that was the impetus, that we had the bombing in 93. 95 was the Oklahoma City. And we needed more units, more of a tiered response for the technical rescue capabilities in the city. You know, five rescue companies, there was plenty of work for them. But having those additional now eight squads throughout the city it just reinforces what the rescue was doing and giving the city more protection. Hazmat, terrorism, technical rescue, and uh, obviously, I wouldn't say better trained, but they're more experienced members of these companies that come from other good companies on the fire floor. Because our mission here in rescue operations is that we want to make sure everybody, all the firefighters, officers go home safe, primarily. You know, the bread and butter of our work is, is fire operations. Firefighting.
0: Chief Ray Downey ranks amongst the most experienced fire officers that the FDNY has ever produced. Commended on 14 occasions, Chief Downey and the fire officers and firefighters who functioned under his charge saved an innumerable number of civilians during his career. Equally significant, his leadership and tactical acumen saved an untold number of firefighters. Chief Downey was a masterful, complex problem solver particularly under pressure. He was accustomed to achieving favorable results against great odds, but he inevitably experienced loss on several occasions. According to his dedicated wife, Rosalie, and son Chuck, Downey had several anchors that got him through his toughest days. You
3: know, 63, almost 64 years old, and, you know, almost 40 years, 39 and a half years. And I had written down, you know, what was his priorities, family? and then faith and the fire department. Those were the three Fs.
2: I think his faith and his honesty and his loyalty was like, and his humbleness was all together. You know what I mean? If you don't have faith, you don't have any of that.
3: Very religious, Catholic school kid. Visited so many apparitions sites, you know, from Medjugorje to Fatima to Knock. And those are funny stories. Kids, you know, he'd be in front of the house in the station wagon, beeping the horn. Come on, you know, and we... We'll have to pile in, go to church, and the whole mass. He's looking back, and you know we're it's five little ones punching each other, and <laughs> it was so. I look back at that. I think that's. Uh, I mean, that's what gets me through the tough days, and I know that's what got him through the tough days.
2: Ray used his religion to get through difficult times in the fire department, and when he went to Oklahoma, he had called out parish priest Father Red and he said, you know, he was having a tough time there. I mean, I didn't know this until I was at Mass, and Father Reardon said that he had called him and he said, you know, if you don't have faith, you don't get through a lot of difficult times. And when he was talking, he said, if someone called me and, and I spoke to him and I and I knew he was talking about Ray, you know, you just know that's the kind of person he was. He wouldn't call me and tell me he was like depressed, you know, and then when he got back, he made sure all his men went, you know, like some place to talk to someone because it was really a bad scene over there too, but that's how faithful he was, you know, he only he did have a problem. He would try to talk to somebody that was more on the religious side, you know what I mean? Like, that's it. Um,
3: there's so many faith stories with him and even Oklahoma City and the rosary beads from the Governor Keating.
2: When he was in Oklahoma, Governor Keating of Oklahoma, asked him, I don't remember the joke Ray told him at this moment, but I know he said something funny like that. And he said, well, you know what? I have two pairs of rosary beads, would you like one and Ray carried those rosy beads with him that when he was lost, he had them. And then Governor Keenan came to my house and he was like, you know, he wa- he wanted to see us again because he was in New York and uh, he gave me his rosy beads and said, you know, I want you to have these because Ray was the most religious man that I ever met. You know, they used to talk and, you know. They didn't tell me he talked to Governor Keeney, you know, but this is him. So I'm getting a little choked up.
3: He <laughs> was really a, a good man. I, I mean, there's a lot of faith stories, and he preached it, you know. He you know he was he was a human, human being. Everyone idolized him and called him God and Master Disaster, but humble, humble.
0: His son, Joe, expanded on additional losses that deeply impacted his father.
1: Yeah, Father's Day was very tough on him. Oklahoma City was the first event. And then losing Kevin Kane, he was working in Rescue 2 at the time, and Kevin was detailed. For 110, that really hurt him. He dedicated his book to Kevin Kane, because he was in 2, and I think he just, not so much Oklahoma, but in the Father's Day and Kevin Kane, a man who could solve just about any problem on the fire floor and fix problems, couldn't fix them that day. There was no way to get to Kevin. And seeing him die the way he died took a toll on him. And also Father's Day being there and having two of his members there, and he couldn't. I'm sure you heard the stories. He came in from home. We were just sitting down for Father's Day and sitting at the table. And it came in, and he, he had to get out. He took off. And when he got there, uh, the stories were that he tried to make it down the stairs. And that's who he is. That's who he is. And I think because he couldn't do it, he, he doesn't like to fail. And he wasn't—he never failed that much. Not that he failed here, but I'm thinking that he couldn't get to where he had to get to, to help these people. And that, that bothered him.
3: That bothered him.
1: Uh, but he was a strong guy. He moved on. Um, it didn't like affect his life, his daily life with his family. Things moved on, but you could see he was different with those events. I think it would affect anybody, but he took it to heart, especially Father's Day. This is his guys, his company. It shouldn't have happened to them. and uh, He couldn't get down there with the other guys. I mean, everybody tried. We had some very good firemen working that day. It's just, it was too much fire in a hardware store and too many flammables. They just couldn't do it. Not from lack of effort. Definitely not from lack of effort.
0: The Father's Day fire that Joe Downey speaks of occurred on June 17th, 2001, Father's Day. A cellar fire in a hardware store in Astoria, Queens triggered an explosion and claimed the lives of three firefighters. Firefighter John Downing of Ladder 163 and firefighters Harry Ford and Brian Fahey of Rescue Company Four. The Father's Day fire was the first fire in FDNY history that claimed the lives of multiple members of a rescue company. As the FDNY's rescue operations commander, the fire's human toll weighed heavily on Chief Downey. Little did he know that in a few short months, many of the same men who operated at the Father's Day fire would find themselves fighting the most complex fire and catastrophic structural collapse in history. 4 call, 4 David mm, call 4 6 to the next. gonna call him mm. in at 4-David to the next. Call 4-David, go with your message
3: Do we have any report on a fire condition yet from on-scene personnel?
0: Division mm. one reports uh, numerous floors on fire, Ken this Is a. Is this a second alarm right now? No. This is a third alarm, the 1060 has been transmitted,
3: Ken 4-David, 10-4 Rescue. Rescue 3 in Manhattan on your frequency.
2: Marine 1 to Manhattan, K. Okay. Marine 1. Be advised, we're responding, we'll be in the river, case okay, For water supply, advise the incoming units, you
0: have visible, visible flames from the side of the building. 10-4, incoming units, be advised, visible flames from the side of the building. Today, John Cirillo serves as the captain of Rescue Company 1 in Manhattan. But in the summer of 2001, Cirillo was a firefighter assigned to Squad Company 18 in Manhattan. On the morning of 9-11, Cirillo was off duty and at home in Brooklyn. He biked to his lower Manhattan firehouse, where he grabbed his gear and hitched a ride to the trade center with another firefighter. Upon arrival, he immediately reported to Chief Ray Downey.
4: The unique part of mine is that I interacted with Chief Downey twice. And, and um, you know, in very pivotal moments. So just in, in brief, I was living in Brooklyn when the first tower got hit. I don't know what's going on, but this is big. And I, I jumped on my mountain bike because I always rode my bike to, to work. And I knew, exa- I knew, regardless of what the traffic was going to be, I knew I could get there in 17 minutes. I could get to the firehouse. Get to the firehouse quick. Howie Scott's waiting. Everybody else is gone. All the companies are gone. And he goes, listen, it's a terrorist attack. Get your stuff. The fire marshals are going to get us down there. And we drew our gear in the back of the fire marshal's car, and they went lights and sirens with just myself and Howie down to uh, Vesey and West. Howie and I walked over to, and across from the North Tower is where the exterior command post was set up. There were two interior command posts in the base of each tower. Then there was this exterior, and Chief Downey was in charge there. And I remember going up to him and saying, Chief, Firefighter Sorella, Firefighter uh, Scott, uh, squad 18 he goes okay fellas he goes listen the next scott unit uh sock units that come in attach yourself to them and go to work and with that uh within maybe a minute less than a minute 288 with lieutenant Kerwin and uh rescue four with uh lieutenant dowdell walked up and we immediately kind of congregated and then we moved away from the command post and we went into the american express building and we were standing in there just trying to assess what we were going to do. And the, and the idea was, we're going to go into the South Tower. There's enough units in the North Tower. We're going to go into the South Tower and see what good we can do. That's basically what happened. So I said to Kurt, Lieutenant Colonel, we don't have masks. He goes, all right, listen. He wrote our names down in his BF4 and sent us, he said, go get masks. If we're not here, we're going to be in the South Tower, 10-4-K. So Howie and I, we take off. The problem was, with all the units that had showed up at that point. Remember, both towers are still standing. Every unit had extra members on the rig, so all the extra equipment was already taken. Well, we make our way up to Hazmat One that was at Vessi and West, and there's one member that always stays back, Tony Castagna. And I go, hey, Tony, you guys got masks? And he goes, he was waiting for someone he knew to show up so he could give them the mask. They have their level A masks tucked underneath. We pulled them out and we inserted uh, a ha- half hour cylinders and we were about to take off. And Tony goes, hold on a second, John. He goes, why don't you take our bottles instead of 30 minute bottles? Because it's a high rise fire. And I'm like, that's a good move. And I, we, we knew we were not going to get up into that tower for quite some time. So we took the two or three minutes and we switched bottles. Now we take off. We get under the North walkway and Howie Scott is looking up at the South Tower. I'm just kind of looking forward and at one point, I remember seeing 288 and Rescue 4 in a single file walking across West Street over the Jersey Barriers and heading towards the South Tower. So I knew that's where they were. And that's where we were heading. And he just said, and excuse my French, oh, shit. And we looked up and the tower starts to come down. Do you remember that video? Like the top of the tower kind of sat down and then started coming down? Well, the sit down is all I needed to see. How are you I, they always tell you, never run on the fire ground unless a building's collapsing, then you're allowed to run. So we ran North and how he kept going straight. I got behind a van and then it was lights out. And I, again, I do not be too graphic, but I mean, you could not see anything. You could not breathe and everything, but I had a mask, right? I remember kneeling down. I said, okay, I can't breathe. Hold your breath. Okay, I've done that as far as before. Helmet between the legs, shook my mask out, turned my cylinder on, put it to my face. And I still got what was in the mask. I still inhale that, but I could breathe now. I'm like, okay, I, I can breathe. So put everything on and I started walking North and I fell down. Now I'm crawling and I'm crawling North, but I'm not crawling North. I end up doing a big loop. And now as the, as it starts to lighten up a little bit, it was, you know, to a gray, to a lighter gray, I, I stand up, I can see the first person I see is Chief Down. He's standing in the middle of West Street. He's got his turnout coat on, no helmet. And I just remember this, his eyebrows were already gray, but he had the white dust on his eyebrows and on his cheeks built up. And I took my mask off and I walked up to him and I said, Chief, you know, John, hey John, all right, listen, this is what we're gonna do. I want every, get everyone, And let's move them all north, and we're going to reform the command post at Chambers, 10-4. So we start just to everybody north, north. So he was, in, you know, as controlled as you could be, thinking as a chief, all that, you know, and again, completely confident in, in what needed to be done at this point, you know. And we start heading north, but then I'm grabbed by Commissioner Feehan, and he was with Chief Downey. And he grabs me, he says, 18. Now, he didn't know my first name. He goes, 18, we have a fireman down at Western Liberty. Go get him. And take this kid with you. And he gives me his his probationary firefighter to go off. And like in my mind, I'm like, the last person I want is a probie with me right now. Because I have to move fast, you know. Well, anyway, off we went. And unfortunately, as we move into that location the second tower comes down and, and unfortunately takes the life of both Commissioner Feehan and uh, and Chief Downer. But really that image of him standing there really by himself, because I don't remember seeing anybody around him, you know, and, and the colors are gone. It's, everything is gray. And there he is with his white hair. And I remember just the dust on the eyebrows and the cheeks, like to this day, it was like a vivid, vivid uh, image of him, again, doing his job. Uh, as a side note i remember speaking to uh, john feehan who's a battalion chief now who was a member of, of squad 252 about his dad you know and, and to tell a son that in the last moments of your father's life he was doing exactly what he had done his whole career was be in command uh, you know and really the same same thing goes to chief down he was in command doing his job with a clear understanding of what had happened you know we weren't uh we weren't fooled in that in that sense, it just was an overwhelming situation for anyone.
0: According to Cirillo, Chief Ray Downey and Commissioner Bill Feehan's leadership and command presence was on display even leading up to their final minutes on earth.
4: There was no panic. There was no, you know, there was urgency maybe, but nothing, you know, nothing unusual. Time to go to work, fellas. This is what we get paid to do.
0: On the morning of Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, Joe and Chuck were off duty and at home with their kids when their mother, Rosalie, called and informed them of the attacks on the World Trade Center. Yeah,
1: so on 9-11, I was off. I was, I was the Captain 18 at the time, Squad 18 in Manhattan, but I was off that day. My wife was a teacher, so I took care of the kids, which she taught. And uh, that morning, I got a call from my mother. She's like, did you see what happened? And there was no pages. I didn't have a cell phone at the time. I wasn't getting anything. Bonnie was on the TV. The kids were young. And I said, no, what's going on? She's like, turn the news on. I just want to make sure you weren't working. I'm like, all right. And uh, I turned it on, saw what was happening. She goes, I got to call your brother, Chuck. I said, I think he's home. I don't think he's working. So she called him up. Then I said, all right, that doesn't look good. I better go get a babysitter. So I called my neighbor over. I said, I got to go to the city, take care of the kids. And ran in at that point, tried to call him. He had a cell phone at the time and, and no answer. So I left Talked to Chuck. I said, I'm going to head in. Uh, He goes, yeah, I got to take care of some things. I'll meet you in there. Went to rescue operations, which was SOC at the time. Got there. And at that point, I knew things weren't good. I I heard on the radio. I couldn't believe what I heard, that I could visualize that these towers all came down. I thought there was a collapse. I didn't realize that they all came down because I was driving most of the time to try to get here. And uh, got to his firehouse. I run in there and I said, do you hear from my father yet? They're like, nothing. I'm like, you sure? He's like, uh, nothing at all. I'm like, that's not good. I figured he's calling back and tell him what he needs to bring over there. I'm like, all right, so we get a couple of guys, we get in the car, we go down there. And I walk down West Street and uh, an eerie feeling like it was like a war zone, just walking down there, and looking at it, just trying to comprehend what the hell happened. Yeah, I, I didn't because I didn't see it happen on TV. I was in the car, and I am just hearing the people talk about it, and I still couldn't put it together until I got down there and saw what was going on, and then walked down West Street, and I saw Chief Crothers, who was his boss, and uh, I went up to him. I said, where's my dad operating? Have you seen him? He just put his head down and said, I haven't seen him in a while, Joe. So I was like, uh, that's not good. You know, that's his boss. If he's reporting in, he's going to report into his boss. So I um, didn't want to give up hope. But when you're looking at what happened and not hearing from him or anybody, you, you figured he'd be at the command post, and it wasn't good. So then we went to work, you know, trying to ask around if anybody saw him and put the pieces together. It took a while. Chuck met up with me. I, I gave him my update. I think I got down there first. As it progressed, we found out he was missing because there was a report earlier that they had him at the hospital. When they found uh, and Chief Gansy and Commissioner Feehand – they said, Oh, Downey's with him. You know, they even put it on the, on the TV. And uh, so they thought he was gone, that he was at the hospital. He, he, they found him. And uh, we were there, Chuck and I, with Cancy and Feehan. And he wasn't there. We knew he wasn't there. So it was just that rumor thing. Like it wasn't good. My family at home was listening to it. They're trying to get in touch with us. Again, no cell phones, so nobody get in touch with us. We went to the hospital just to confirm it that that wasn't him. And. Uh, At that point, we knew he was missing. With the rest of them, we didn't know how many people were missing, but we knew he was gone. Um, Trying to hold on to some sort of hope, like, all right, he knows what's happening. He's going to find a place to hide. You know, always, you know, kind of silly stuff, but trying to figure it out.
0: The days and weeks that followed that horrific morning are etched in Chuck's memory.
3: We parked on west, north of west. Walking down, we're still apocalyptic looking. With the ash and the destruction and people, and by the time you know we walked down and got near the command post, there was a lot of people working. They were saying, "Oh, this is where the command post." And then shortly after, there was a ton of guys there. Pete Gancy was found, and then I guess maybe like an hour, you know. So I don't really remember. Joe and I finally crossed past because can't the size of that site was tremendous, and um, you know we went to work. You know we had some conversations. Um, he was probably over here, you know, and Joe, we, we were talking about Squad 18, you know, all our companies, Rescue 2, you know, Rescue 4, Squad 4, 235, like, you know, we both had three previous companies that they were still missing. And then by, I guess it was the early afternoon, I remember Nick Visconti holding a, a roll call over on West Investy over there, and then breaking us up into teams and going back to work, and then it was maybe like five-ish or so. Where they cleared everyone out, we had to go to the water because then Building Seven came down. But we were there. I think I went home once in three weeks. We just slept in different buildings, and eventually they got set up. When you had to rest, the first three weeks was tough because we, you know, we we were still in that mindset that we could find people alive, and there was those initial finds, as we all know. That was probably the most frustrating part of nine eleven is not getting the finds that you were expecting to find. You know, we were expecting to find so many more people alive. Because there were so many voids, and everyone was crawling. There were so many different people crawling in and out of voids. My younger brother, who was on a fire, you know, we brought him down, and he was staying with us. And then we basically went to a, a rotation where one of us was always at the site. And then I guess it was like December, when I went to back to the firehouse, but Joe and I and Ray, we were still keeping tabs on the site. Because even, you know, we had a rotation. So even 41, we, I would be going down with 41. But, I mean, there was one of us there almost every single day, which was a lot. I think, you know, not, not finding anyone alive besides my father and my friends, but anyone. It was hard. I still remember talking to some guys like Danny Collins, who was a battalion chief, and the Vidge. the Vidge. I remember one day talking to the Vidge, and him kind of just setting me straight, you know, and i like, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling bad here, but here, you know, Joey and John, are lost. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't, you know, because I don't think, you know, our mentality in this fire department is, you're just going to keep working and working and working. You know what I mean? And that goes back to never giving up and, and staying in shape, right? I feel like no one could outwork me. I felt like that my whole life. There's no one that's going to outwork me at anything. But that was really probably one of the most difficult times of my life accepting that we didn't find anyone. You know, those initial J and the stairwell, those initial finds were within 12 hours, 20 less than 24 hours. But reflecting back... On the experiences down there, you know, so much experience was lost. Like, you know, like I try not to talk about myself about that down there because it's about their legacies. You know, people like, you know, yeah, I I did my job. We weren't successful in finding people alive like we hoped, but it's really about them. It's not about me. I don't want to talk about me. I really want to talk about their legacies and their stories and, you know, Mike Corley and Billy Lake, guys that I personally, you know, like those guys that stand out, because I still rec- remember finding them. And those are the stories I like to tell because it was um, you know, just not what we were expecting, expecting much more life.
0: Joe Downey suffered unthinkable loss on the morning of 9-11 when he lost his father. But at the time, he was also one of the FDNY's 12 Rescue and Squad Company commanders in Chief Downey's Special Operations Command. The untimely deaths of those in his charge weighed heavily on him.
1: I was the captain of Squad 18 at the time, so I lost you know, seven of my guys. So I had to go to funerals. Uh, it was the right thing to do. We recovered a couple of, our, of Squad 18 members right off the bat. So we were, were in one of the first funerals in the first week or so. So It was hectic for everybody down there, but losing your dad and knowing he's still in there, you know, we didn't want to leave. So we, we worked it out where we would try to be there just in case they did find him. You know, the military, as I don't have to tell you, you want to be there for your brother and we want to be there for our dad. And if they carried him out, then we want to be there. It was tough because uh, it took a toll on our family's bad. having young children, not being around. But right, We felt like that's what we had to do. He would do it for us. And we wanted to do it. It wasn't like we wanted; we wanted to be there with the others trying to find their loved ones, whether it's their sons, their fathers, you know, their company members, you know, we, we needed to be part of that. It was tough for everybody at the time, and unfortunately, they never recovered him. They identified him. We had a memorial service in, in December, and then they, they identified him towards the end of May, and then we had uh, a regular service for him. Uh, being a religious family, mom needed something. She's a cemetery mom, you know, she goes and visits. So she needed something in the cemetery. And uh, they identified him, and we were able to bury what they identified and uh, put it to rest in a way.
0: Captain Joe Downey was promoted to the rank of battalion chief in September 2002. Upon his promotion, he returned to the FDNY's Rescue Operations Battalion the same command that his father had launched just years prior. Following in his father's footsteps of enhancing the FDNY, Joe felt compelled to play a critical role in the department's rebuilding process.
1: Yeah, my heart was always here. I felt there was unfinished business too. Not that I could solve everything, but I feel like the fortunate ones that didn't die that day, that were still in the command, that had been in command, gotta step up to the plate. It was our turn to step up. I was the captain there. I became FEMA task force leader at the time. Also, we lost so much leadership and so much seniority that somebody had to do it. And not that I'm the guy that should be put in different positions. You have to, I feel like you still have to earn it. The people before us had a vision of the command and where it was going, and we couldn't let them down. We had to continue that vision. And there was not just myself. There was other people that knew that. And the group was a good group. And... Rescue school had to get up and running, We had to go recruit good people, bring them back in there into the command. And I think we did a great job of it, everybody as a whole, building up to the command to where we were before 9-11, with all the experience we have, to where we are now. Even, I think it took probably a good seven, eight years to feel comfortable again, training and getting that that group in and the experience level back up, in my eyes. People may look at it differently, but it was important To me, that I wouldn't let him down either in that respect. He's not here anymore. He can't give me those eyes. But it was it was like you know what we got to continue this. Somebody's got to do it. We got to continue this, and and that was what we wanted to do.
0: Chuck Downey celebrated a career milestone by being promoted in two thousand two as well. Both of Joe and Chuck's promotions serendipitously advanced them to ranks and responsibilities that paralleled those of their father in the final years of his distinguished career. On July 1st, 2022, Chuck Downey was promoted to the rank of Deputy Assistant Chief and assumed command of the FDNY's Fire Trading Academy at Randall's Island. His mother, wife, children, and siblings, including brother Joe, were on hand for the momentous occasion of his assumption of command of the FDNY's Fire Academy. Incidentally, Randall's Island is where Chief Ray Downey launched the FDNY's Technical Rescue School in 1996. Chuck was a young member of Rescue 4 at the time and a student in the first rescue technician course. Today. The FDNY's All Hazards Special Operations Training Simulator occupies the same terrain and is appropriately named in memory of Chief Raymond Downey. Chuck reflects on the humble but significant origins of the Technical Rescue School when training was conducted in a Spartan industrial lot with shipping containers under the tutelage of the FDNY's most experienced firefighters.
3: Every day there, I could say, Pretty much I, I do a lap, I, I, you know, I walk around, You know, I try to talk to unit heads, talk to the firefighters, anything that's going on, just to make a connection with the position that I'm in. But I, I go past my father's site and I, I look at it, the all hazards training site, and I think of his vision in this first class that we often speak about, right, 1996, because um, I still remember him calling me up and he goes, hey, listen. Uh, are you considering making a move? And I was like, yeah, I've been thinking, because I had a couple of years in the truck. But he goes, well, uh, we're looking at putting three additional guys in each on each roster to start a rescue school, a rescue technician course for new entries. So I went and spoke to Captain Corcoran at the time. So I guess it was the fall of 96 when I got the call. Uh, coincidentally, ironically, where the trailer was for the rescue tech school is basically where the law its training site is. Mm-hmm. The small trailer, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was two weeks, it might have been two weeks initially, the rescue tech class. You know, it was the first class, there were seven companies, it was 21 of us, you know, the five rescues and squad one and 41. For me, being young, right, I had Liam and I both had like six years on. Six did we even have six? not even seven. We had six and change. You know, so there was a lot of us Jack Flatley, there was a lot of us in the class, Marmon, where we were there was a ton of us with like six years on. I'm just trying to think of some of the other guys that were in that class, Alan, Mike Jello. You know, we were young, hungry, and I, I think, you know, my father's vision was I right, get this get these guys and then eventually start the disciplines. Because there was nothing before that you know you learned in the firehouse so for, for someone like me i came in i went to rescue I'm learning from timmy higgins and pete martin guys that i still remember timmy higgins firefight removal one of the best classes taught at the first rescue tech you know someone goes down a hole and you know making different type of mechanical advantages by yourself with just a piece of rope um removing someone from a portable ladder which we do now but it was all Timmy stuff. You know, those first two weeks, and then it went right into coming out, and then the, the rotation, obviously, is pretty similar to what they do now with the different disciplines, whatever it is, trench, confined space, collapse, et cetera. Um, for me, being young and the background that I had, and it was like I just want to be a sponge and learn as much as possible. And, you know, so for me, taking my father's vision and then learning from guys like Harry Ford. Oh, my goodness, Right.
0: Also in July of 2022, Chief Joe Downey proudly inherited command of the FDNY's rescue operations.
1: It's emotional, but it's a privilege and an honor. I've always felt it's a privilege and honor to work in this command. You know, from the time I went to squad one, some great people in this command, we do great things, and uh, there's no entitlement. I don't think... uh, you know, some people may look at it because they put me there because my father and everything like that. I think Chuck and I always felt that we got to be our own person. We can never be him. We never got on his job after he left and moved up in ranks to be who he was. There's only one Ray Downey, you know, but if you take his his character, his qualities you know, and emulate some of that stuff and try to be a, a little of him, you're going to make things better. If you take something from him, you're going to make things better. And uh, to go to rescue operations right now as the chief there. Uh, it's an emotional time because uh, that was his last spot. I never thought I would be going there. I was did almost 19 years in the rescue battalion as a chief officer now. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it hasn't really sunk in yet of being in that office that he held 20 years ago. But uh, hopefully I can make an impact, continue to make an impact in the command as he has done. and. Um, we got a good group right now. We got a good group of chiefs there. We got a we got good, really good officers in the command. We're in a good spot. I'm taking. I'm going to a position that the people around me are going to make me better too. I believe that's one of the most important things. You can't do it yourself. This job is. There's, there's too much to ask of one person. As good as Ray Downey was, he couldn't do it by himself. He, he needed help. He needed good people around him. When you look at some of his companies and the people that he surrounded and, and worked alongside him, helped him build to where we are now. And uh, I try to do that. I try to, to surround myself and bring in, whether it's a good demeanor, a good pedigree, chief officers, you know, uh, captains, lieutenants. And I think if you ask most people in the command right now, and it's not just me, it was Chief Cunningham, Chief Moore, Chief Esposito, Rescue Battalion Chiefs. We work together well and the partnership is good and I think we're going to continue that moving forward. But uh, to get back to your question about moving in there, I think it's going to be an emotional day when I actually move in and sit at that desk and uh, that'll be my my position now moving forward. Um, I'm looking forward to it, It's it's going to be pretty neat.
0: Chief Ray Downey's legacy in the FDNY's Special Operations Command undoubtedly endures, just as it does in FEMA's Urban Search and Rescue Task Forces. His legacy is also best captured in the Raymond M. Downey Forever Running Memorial 5K Run Walk. Chief Downey and his wife Rosalie's shared love for their family, friends, faith, and our nation's military veterans and first responders is memorialized and celebrated in Deer Park, Long Island each year on Father's Day and is organized by his family members.
1: Father's Day was going to be a tough day the to, first time around. And we're like, you know, what, what could we possibly do on Father's Day? And I think it was one of my sisters said, I'd love to run. Let's do a run. Uh, that's 20 years ago.
2: We had 800 people show up. We were like shocked. And it was unbelievable. And then from that time, we got up to over 2,000 people coming. And we had it at the Knights of Columbus for 20 years. We gave out more than a million dollars to the fire department, to the church, to all different charity
1: funds. It was something that he loved to do. So we were like, you know what, there's runs out there, but I looked at it, there's not that many runs on Father's Day. So let's establish our run on Father's Day and make it the best, just like he would want it to be. Let's make it the best. He was a marathoner. I was in college training to you know be a college wrestler, and he was in his late 40s, and we ran our first New York City Marathon together. It was a great experience running through all the neighborhoods, all the fire departments, seeing him. We had fire shirts on, everybody cheering for us. And then we got to about 20, 20 21 miles, He's like i'm gonna take it easy you go ahead i didn't want to leave him but he's like ah, just run your race i'll catch up to you later on and he finished the race in uh three hours and 20 21 minutes which at the time for the man of that age is very impressive if you run marathons I, I i would never be able to do it at the age he was at i ran a few i thought i was pretty good i ran 314 but i was 21 years old 22 years old and then when i look at it now because i was still trying to do marathons. I may do one with my son this year. He's always wanted to do one, and uh, I'm kind of getting at that age, a lot, a lot older than he was, 40, late 40s. But I, I did run one just recently, uh, three years ago. Three years ago, my nieces, because they wanted to do one in honor of him, and I said, let's do it together. But uh, the Father's Day run is—we've uh, always been a very physically fit family as a whole. You know, and that starts from him. He ran every day he was home. He was on Deer Park Avenue, the main road down Deer Park, and uh, people saw him with his with his Marine Corps sweats on or his Marine Corps hat. He was running, he was a fixture in town. And uh, what better way to remember him and honor him than do something that he loved to do?
2: It'll go on as long as we can. And we have only my family that runs it and the people from Deer Park, our friends, and some from the fire department, you know, and they come from all over. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know? And it, it's only run by us, you know? And it, it's like the community thing, actually. It's like giving back to the community because everybody knew Ray because he ran up and down Deer Park and in the street. And they used to say, oh, I saw your husband today, you know? <laughs> so everybody knew him, but they didn't realize what he accomplished in his years until he passed, which is sad in a way, but.
1: That's how Ray was. Humble. The community was great to us after 9-11. And we wanted to give back to the community. We wanted to hold an event that was family-based in the community and thank them. So we we don't charge exorbitant fees. It was very minimal, you know, between the food and the beer and the prizes and the giveaways. Um, You know, for $25, it's, it's... is a pretty good deal, but it wasn't about making money. We did make and we've given over a million dollars in the last 20 years to different organizations. The big thing that is great for my mom that we do is, um, she's able to give to families in need. There's a family in town that's hurting for something and uh, they went through a bad experience. They lost a child or something and uh, she's the first one to step up and write a check. We need to help them and she's always giving and giving. And, uh, it's kind of crazy. We established scholarships with some of the funds at Stony Brook University, where Chuck played ball, and at Hofstra, where my brother and I wrestled. The local high school give scholarships there. My town, my wife started one in my town for our high school. So everything we bring in from the run gets put back out there to people in need, to organizations that were close to my dad those organizations that he was involved with or would have wanted us to be involved with.
2: Just at the end of the day, I just feel like we do all of this and we and we do the 5K race to raise the money, to give back to charities, to give back to scholarships, just that people can learn about him and just feel inspired that, you know, someone from a humble background has seen so much, he's done so much, he can inspire you to be a, a faithful person and just be the best at whatever you do. And that's really how he lived his life, and that's what he gave the message to us, his own children. Whatever you do, do it the best you can. And I just think his legacy can inspire others just to, and the world would be a better place if more people were like him. It's like his legacy is that it'll live on to me, but all the things that he did. And till this day, people remember him time I go somewhere someone will tell me another story you know and it's like he touched a lot of lives even my son's friends they said Mr. Downey even though we were afraid of him because he was so strict we admired him they looked up to him I got so many letters like from all over, even from England, because he had gone there to, he traveled, you know, all different places on what he did, you know, on rescue and, and he touched so many lives. So to me, his legacy will go on forever.
0: Each year to mark the anniversary of 9-11, the Leadership Under Fire team is honored to share the inspiring stories of brave members of the FDNY who made the supreme sacrifice responding to the attacks on the World Trade Center. I'd like to take a moment to thank the following for contributing to our series, Remembering FDNY Deputy Chief Raymond Downey, as we mark the 21st anniversary of September 11th. Rosalie Downey, Chiefs Joe and Chuck Downey and their sisters, Marie and Kathy, retired Lieutenants Danny Murphy and Bobby Larocco, retired Chief of Department Tom Richardson, and Captain John Cirillo. I'd also like to acknowledge Leadership Under Fire founder Jason Bresler for his efforts producing this series.